Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, the philosophy of stoicism and how it can help you navigate the markets. We will also discuss what we can and cannot control, how to manage our emotions to reach our financial goals, plus how to deal with setbacks and insults. That's with our guest, William B. Irvin, author and professor of philosophy at Wright State University in Ohio. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. All right. Well, before we get started, Rusty, let's take a quick look at the markets. As we are recording this, the S&P just closed a six-week losing streak and narrowly missed a bear market. How are investors managing the volatility out there? It's been rough. It's definitely been rough. The markets are off to a rough start. And of course, individual investors are pretty bummed out, as are professional money managers. And so are financial advisors. So given this environment, We thought we would take a different take with this week's podcast and invite a guest who might be able to offer some tips and techniques that might not only help investors make better investment decisions, but also help live a good life. Right. Okay. Well, let's bring him in. As we said, William Irvin is a professor of philosophy at Wright State University and the author of several books, including The Stoic Challenge and A Guide to the Good Life. Bill, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Oh, thank you. Pleasure to be here. So before we get started, could you tell us a bit about your background and how you got interested in philosophy? Okay. So grew up in uh, mining towns out in the western part of the United States. One of them was in Chile, where this was when I was I started school in, in a two-room schoolhouse, <laughs> one with grades one through three and ones with grades four through six. And I had literally right across the street was the Pacific Ocean. And I was just a kid, you know, and I assumed everybody kind of had that. And then I went through various mining towns, western United States, ended up at the University of Michigan. So that was kind of a, an odd thing. And went to graduate school at UCLA. And always before that had been, you know, just an academic kind of person, just kind of buckle down, kind of get good grades and do everything else. Late in my career, though, it occurred to me that there was a wider audience that I could be reaching instead of the academic kind of audience. Early on in your career, what do you need to do? You need to publish, and you need to publish in the right places. So I was writing articles and books that would let me do that. But then once I achieved the rank of full professor, it dawned on me that that's as high as you can go. There is no uh, promotion beyond that. So I might as well take all of this academic freedom that I've earned and do something with it. And so I started writing books with a very broad audience in mind. Now, another thing that your audience should know about me is as a nine-year-old, I began my life as an investor. My father gave me a share of Litton stock, L-I-T-T-O-N. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was a hot stock because it was one of the early conglomerates. And, you know, I got the first, they were worth $70 a share. And I thought, this is incredible. So it went up and it went up. And then I convinced my father to take all of my worldly 
gift money and everything else and buy me a second share of Lytton stock. And I bought at the peak. <laughs> and it started its long slide to oblivion. And I think I ended up selling other uh, shares. It's something ridiculous, like $13. And that, that was back when you had to pay commission. So I'm not even sure I took anything away from the deal. But it's a perfect first stock to own. Okay. I just turned 70. So that means I've been an investor for what would that be? Uh, 61 years. So I have a lot of time investing. I've learned a lot. I made a lot of really incredible mistakes, but I'm still here, still uh, fully invested and have learned a lot, a lot about uh, what it takes and a lot about what it's like to go through a down market, you know, one that just grinds away and you look and you're so tempted to just make the pain stop. And all you have to do is sell everything. And I've also seen the opposites of things going up. I had a little period where I tried options. First trade doubled my money in a matter of days. Next 12 trades. Yeah. <laughs> no such luck. Um, so, you know, but the interesting thing is, and so I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett, because what does he say to do? Just sit there, sit on your hands and uh, go in for the long run. Yeah. All right. Well, perfect background for our audience. And I want to talk about stoicism, of course, which is uh, the philosophy that you've been studying for uh, the last several years. And I read the essay that you wrote about how you became a Stoic. And in there, you said that the dictionary definition of a Stoic is someone who is seemingly unaffected by joy or grief. But you write that definition really doesn't capture it. So can you tell us a more accurate definition of Stoicism? Okay. The uh, Stoics themselves, I mean, we think of them as people who simply rejected emotion, denied that it existed or refused to experience and who would just quietly take whatever life threw at them. And in college, as a philosophy major, I encountered the Stoics, but I encountered them in logic class because it turns out they were the preeminent logicians of their time. They worked on what's called propositional logic. That's the logic of and and nor and neither nor and if then, which is actually the kind now that's used in computers. So, you know, if you really wanted to stretch a bit, you could say they were, you know, right there at the, uh, at, and this would have been in 300 BC at the foundation, you know, of the computer movement. But that's where I encountered them. And it was only later, much later, and this would be in the early 2000s, I was writing a book on called On Desire, where I was examining human desire and where it came from. I was writing that book because I was convinced I wanted to become a Zen Buddhist. And at the same time, I wasn't a full professor yet, so I was convinced, yeah, this would be a great publication. But to make it acceptable, it was published by Oxford University Press. I had to not just kind of make it a personal kind of thing. I had to explore other areas. One of the things I explored was stoicism, and I just had my socks blown off by it because it was so incredible. I didn't realize that they were not only doing logic, but they were coming up with all these great psychological strategies. So they were ready to admit that they had emotions, and in particular, negative emotions. And they said, you know, it's just part of being a human. And they said, but here's what you can do. There are certain strategies you can use 
that aren't going to make the negative emotions go away, but they're going to lessen the impact on you. Or in some cases, you'll get to avoid them. And I found out at the same time that they were had nothing at all against positive emotions, emotions like joy and delight. Delight is one of the greatest emotions there is, but it's very much underappreciated. And that's when you're taking a walk and you look at the blue sky above and you say, isn't it great to be alive? That's such a, an affirming emotion. And yet it's easy to ignore and to therefore live without. I'd like to talk about a couple kind of key principles of stoicism as I understand it. And so first of all is understanding the difference between what you can control and what you cannot. And the second is the concept of negative visualization. Can you explain what those principles mean? Okay, so uh, it was Epictetus, the Roman Stoic, who came up with this notion of you divide what there is into two categories, the things you can control and the things you can't control. And you focus your attention on the things you can control. Because, you know, if you focus your attention on the things you can't control, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your emotion. And if you're anxious about them, you're wasting your time and emotion because you can't control them. So a better strategy is to focus your attention on things you can control. Now, I divide the things you can control into two subcategories. So there's the things you have complete control over, like your choice of values, the things you value. You get to decide that. You get to choose that. And then there's the things you have some but not complete control over. So for instance, suppose you're a tennis player and you know you have a big match coming up. One of the things you can do is uh, just think about your training, think about your strategy, think about what you're going to eat the night before the match, think about what you're going to do during the match. Those are things you have a very not complete control over because you could get sick, you could get COVID, you know, the day before the match, but you have considerable control over the interesting thing is you don't have control over what your opponent is doing. So you shouldn't be sitting there dwelling on your opponent because he's going to do what he's going to do. What you need to pay attention to is the things you can control. And you want to be at your prime the day of the game. And you know what? If you were at your prime, if you prepared the best you could, then however the game turns out, you did the best you could. And by the way, I was looking at... Uh, Guide to the Good Life this morning, and a long time since I wrote it. So, <laughs> uh, but I dedicated it to Charlie Doyle, who is the guy who taught me how to row. So I row competitively. And so the dedication is he's the one who taught me to keep my head in the boat, even when I'm not rowing. And what that means is when you're rowing, if you start looking at the other boats and thinking about what they're doing, Bad things are going to happen. These boats are incredibly tippy boats in a moment of misattention, and suddenly you find yourself upside down and, and in the water. So you know what? You can't control what they're going to do. So you fixate on what you're going to do, and you do it to the best of your ability. And then whatever the result is, you walk away saying, you know, I did my best. And that's the most I can do. Yeah. That is, you know, for investors, I mean, we cannot control the markets. And I think a lot of people spend a lot of emotion, a lot of energy thinking about that when that's something you can't control. You control how much you save. You can control how your portfolio is constructed. You can control your timeframes. You can control how often you look at your performance statements, but you can't control the markets. What about the concept of negative visualization for investors? I think I have an idea, but how would you answer that? How should investors use negative visualization? 
Okay, so we talked about these positive emotions that you can experience. And this is going to sound paradoxical, but one of the ways to increase the number of positive emotions you experience and to make whatever you're now experiencing vastly more tolerable is to take a moment to think about how things could be worse. Because things could always be worse. Now, you don't want to dwell on how things can be worse because that's a recipe for depression. That's not good for you. But you want to allow yourself occasionally to have a flickering thought about how things could be worse. So, you know, and sometimes people say, well, what if you're being wheeled to the operating room for cancer? How could things be worse? And then, well, I've got a number of answers, but one of them is, well, you have operable cancer. It could have been inoperable. And yet you've still got a chance. And oh, by the way, did I remind you, you're still alive too. So there are ways things could be worse. Now, for most people, they aren't in those desperate straits. But there's all sorts of things in your life that you take utterly for granted. You take your relationships for granted. You take your house for granted. You take the fact, I hope this is true, that in the neighborhood where you live, that there aren't random shots fired in the night, you take that for granted. That's just how things are. But it doesn't have to be that way. And so what it does is it allows you to really appreciate the things that you would otherwise take for granted. And uh, it's a simple little uh, strategy. It's a psychological strategy. Works very effectively. Easy to do, easy to learn, easy to teach. And oh, by the way, it's going to wear off. So you're going to do it and then give yourself a matter of minutes or give yourself an hour and you'll kind of be have lurched back. But it can be reapplied multiple times. So in the course of a day, I will make a point of pausing and it only takes a few seconds to think, okay, here's something I've got. You know, when I had coffee this morning, you know, <laughs> There are all sorts of, I'm reading that baby food, you know, is in short supply and this coffee might not be here. And you know what? When you drink that cup, it's double good mm -hmm. because you know it's there. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned, you know, you might think of these things and then that's, it's kind of fleeting and you forget to do it. So how do you move from really understanding what stoicism is and how it works to internalizing it and incorporating it into your daily life? It's like uh, any uh, practice. Number one, uh, they say practice makes perfect. Practice doesn't make perfect. My son's fiance right now is an oboist. And so I'm learning all about oboe in an interesting way that I knew it was a musical instrument before, but now I know, oh, wow, you know. And my son is always telling me, I'm saying, well, where is Lauren? And my son says, oh, she's practicing. You know, and there's one part of my brain that says, okay, she keeps practicing. When's she finally going to learn it? And the answer is you never do. And Stoicism, it's the same way. Uh, and what happens is you backslide. So the ancient Stoics talked about this notion of the perfect Stoic. Well, it's an exemplar. It's a, a goal at which to aim, but you'll never get there. How come? Because you're a human being. You're wired to take things for granted. You're wired to become dissatisfied with whatever it is you've got and want more. How come? Because your evolutionary ancestors who felt that way were more likely to survive and reproduce than those who thought, oh, here we are on the savannas of Africa. I'm going to spend the afternoon just lying around, living in the moment. People who did that soon got eaten by a lion or whatever it is they have on the savannah of Africa. 
Yeah. Can you tell us how the Stoic philosophers thought about money? So I know they wrote a lot about the negatives of fame and fortune, but Stoic Epictetus did say this, if you can make money remaining honest, trustworthy, and dignified, by all means do it. But if you don't have to make money, if you have to compromise your integrity, how did the Stoics think about money? Yeah, the Stoics were virtuous in some sense. So if the only way you could get money was by deceiving other people or by stealing it, well then shame on you. And there's a bunch of interesting paradoxes of wealth connected with the Stoics. Look, the four Roman Stoics, two of them were multi-billionaires. So Marcus Aurelius was the Roman emperor. And you know, with that came power and it came incredible wealth. And uh, Seneca, who at present is my favorite Stoic, was the first century AD equivalent of a billionaire. He had a number of business interests. He was also the leading playwright of his time, oh, by the way, and the most prolific of the Stoics. So, he just had a lot going on. And then you had Musonius Rufus, who's the fourth. Epictetus would be the third. Musonius Rufus was the fourth. And if you asked him, what do you need for dwelling? He would say, well, you know, caves work pretty well. So he was at the other end and they were all practicing Stoicism. So question, can you be incredibly wealthy and still be a Stoic? Yes. Can you be poverty stricken and still be a Stoic? Yes. So it seems to be a loose fit. There's another paradox though that comes here that when you're a Stoic and you learn to appreciate the things you've already got, then that whole desire, gosh, I got to spend money. I got to show people what I've got. I've got to get that mega yacht. You know, I've got to do all of those things that those kind of desires wither away. And you find yourself in this strange circumstance of having more money than you know what to do with because you're basically satisfied with the life you're living. And yet, you know, you know you're supposed to want more and you look around you and everybody's going to say, well, we can spend the money for you if you need to spend it. And yet, it's a strange situation to be in. And uh, Seneca would have been there. They all would have been there because they all found a way to be, to embrace the life they found themselves living. And that's one of the most important things Stoicism can do for you. Even if you're a slave, Epictetus started out as a slave who was lamed by his, beaten by his master and was lame as a result. And he, he found out a way how by using Stoicism, he could appreciate the life that destiny had offered him. So, our podcast here is named after a phrase from Benjamin Graham, the father of value investing, and of course, Warren Buffett, who we're all a fan of. He also said that in the short run, the market is a voting machine, which is measuring what is popular, but in the long run, it's a weighing machine, so it's measuring what has substance. Both of them, Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett, also emphasized how investors should keep their emotions in check to be successful. Benjamin Graham said, the investor's chief problem and his worst enemy is likely to be himself. So the key to successful investing is, as we believe, is staying balanced and staying on course. And to do that, we do have to manage our emotions. So as why I've already mentioned, the market is extremely volatile and investor sentiment is extremely negative. Uh, consumers are also extremely depressed as well, even though they're in pretty good financial shape. So all that said, how can stoicism help investors be successful in the long term, especially if they're feeling anxious about the markets and letting their emotions drive their financial decisions. 
Yeah, emotions are your biggest enemy and you are your biggest enemy. You are your biggest obstacle to successful investing. And the problem is your emotions are going to give you all the wrong answers. When the market's going up, they're going to say, buy, buy, buy. Your emotions, when the market's going down, they're going to say, sell, sell, sell. I often have suggested to people, although it isn't a serious suggestion, is what's the key to investment success? Well, number one, invest in diverse stocks, maybe stocks and bonds mixed, and then rip Van Winkle it for 20 years, and you're going to wake up affluent. How come? Well, what did you get rid of? And the answer is you got rid of yourself during that time, the self that would have been doing just the wrong thing at any given moment. So it's a curious thing. You kind of monitor the market, and when it goes down... You say, okay, this is just the nature of the beast. It goes down, it goes up. And in the long run, historically, it's up compared to where it was before. The problem is you have to go through all of that time in the middle of it going down and going up. So in my life, I've gained perspective in the sense that I've been through. Remember the crash of 87? I do, you know, and the interesting thing is now I look back on historical stock market charts and I remember that day. It's etched into my soul. I look on long-term stock market charts and I can barely find the crash of 87. It's just this little wiggle in a, in a line that has gone steadily upward subsequently. And then realizing, you know, the mistakes I've made, number one, is you got to be looking for your mistakes because they're there. Because if you don't admit to your mistakes, you're going to repeat your mistakes. And the problem is we all love to tell people about our good investments and we hide our bad investments. And that's just a bad investment hygiene. You know, you should sort of say, oh, I made a mistake. Let's see. Why did I make that mistake? What role did emotions play in my making that mistake? And what can I learn from it? You know, there's one thing worse than making a mistake, and that is making it and not acknowledging it so you can avoid it in the future. That's worse than making a mistake. So the whole emotional thing, you try to keep the negative emotions under check. Anxiety is one of them. And anxiety is when you fixate on things you can't control or have no control over. That's the principal cause of anxiety. So what do you do? You focus on the things you can control. So do I have a balanced portfolio? Am I buying stocks with a long-term view on it? There are people who do short-term investing successfully. I tip my hat to them. I can't do it. <laughs> I know that from personal experience. I proved to myself that I can't do it. And some of them can't even do it. They're just the outliers, you know, the statistical ones that, that pop up who got lucky. But the beautiful thing is, and this is absolutely beautiful, is that if you tell me, hey, I actually don't know a whole lot about the market. I'm not going to follow the market. I've got money to invest in the market. And then, hey, when I retire, I'm going to need that money. Wow, have I got a deal for you. You know, it's, it's beautiful. It's curious, though. The smarter you are, and this is for me, you know, I've figured a lot of things out in my life. I could not figure out the market, meaning I could not figure out the magic formula. And now I'm suspecting, well, there actually isn't one. It's got such a random element built in. And you can't predict what the roulette wheel is going to do in the markets that way. But you can predict over the long run, you know, that it's going to come up a certain number 
one time out of 38. And so in the long run, you can predict, but short term, no. And yet your emotions are going to tell you on the savannas of Africa, you need to worry about today. You know, you didn't think in those long terms and you need to overcome that and try to do the opposite. Well, I want to ask you about uh, two of the leading reasons that investors fail to reach their goals. And the first one is loss aversion. So how can stoicism help investors deal with losses, whether they're financial or otherwise as well? Yeah. And so there are people who will refuse to sell a stock that's going down on the grounds that I haven't lost money until I sell it. So there's a whole bunch of mind games that investors play. So you just have to be in it, realizing markets go up, markets go down. One thing that I found useful is there are websites where you can, and I'm sure many of your uh, listeners already use this, but websites where you can see what a certain mix of stocks would have done in the past. And you go back and you realize, oh, wow, that mix would have gone down. And then they'll tell you, but you would have gotten back to where you were within X number of months, which is enormously reassuring. Uh, Experience helps, you know, once you survive something and you realize, oh, it's actually, I'm running an obstacle course, right? It's not a long, flat marathon. It's not a sprint, but it's not a long, flat marathon. It's an obstacle course, and the obstacles are the setbacks. And those who can clear the setbacks, what does that mean? That means you just hunker down. This is if you are a true passive investor, you just hunker down. You watch, and maybe you congratulate yourself for not panicking. And you watch as other people panic, and then you clear that hurdle, and then you go up. And right now, you know, We've had such a good market since 2008. Uh, Now there have been dips, but wow, you know, compared to the 70s, wow, compared to the 80s, wow, we've had an incredible market, a good market. And so people have gotten fat and complacent, you know, that's what they compare things to. And uh, do some market history (laughs) and you'll find, do some negative visualization and you'll see uh, that not only things, can things be much worse, but they have been vastly worse than this. Well, another leading reason that investors don't reach their financial goals is FOMO, right? Fear of missing out and envying other success. And this ties into another book that you wrote, which you mentioned, which was On Desire, Why We Want What We Want. So how can what you've learned about desire help investors and advisors with this kind of fear and envy? Yeah. One of the things to realize about desire is we all want to be rich and famous, Uh, Now, it's in relative terms. So rich means what? It means, well, better than the people you hang out with, more affluent. Famous means what? You want the social status that comes with that. And those two are, are linked together. So I'm convinced that if there was no one around to impress with your money, you'd lose interest in it, you know? Why buy, you know, a 76-room mansion? So there'll be people who say, he's got a 76-room mansion. But, uh, you know, if there was nobody to impress, that would be, what a terrible thing, you know? Two rooms would be fine for, for human purposes. So the interesting thing is, we want to impress. And we certainly don't want a friend who comes up and says, oh, I got in on at the market bottom. What did you do? Well, I, I didn't. I, I skipped it. So we have this whole comparative thing going on. The friend who says that to you, oh, by the way, 
might or might not have done what he said, or he might have bought one stock at the market bottom, and yet it's easy to sort of take him at face value. Same thing is going on now that we have social media. You know, people post pictures of themselves. What pictures do they pose? post? Pictures of themselves at their prime, surrounded by loving friends, celebrating, and a lot of them actually go deep into debt. <laughs> <laughs> to create the circumstances in which those pictures can be taken, investors do the same. So if somebody tells you they've done great in the market, say, hey, that's wonderful. Don't compare. Don't compare. Or if you're going to compare, here's how you compare. Compare 20 years from now. That's your goal. Long-term goal. And short-term, it's gambling. It's risky behavior. And why would you do that? Well, one of the reasons is to impress people. I mean, here's another thing. If you have a portfolio, keep it to yourself. As soon as you tell other people, here's the stocks I own, whoops, you become emotionally attached to those stocks. And other people are actually going to watch when the stock goes down and they're going to feel schadenfreude, a fancy word meaning they're going to feel delighted, your distress. And you don't, want, you don't need any of that. And the easy thing to do is you just say, uh, yeah, I got a mixed portfolio, and which by the way is a good thing to have, but uh, you don't make it personally and you don't make it social. That is such a big tip about not making your uh, investment holdings public. And I've always noticed that. And in fact, as a former director of research, I would actually on a monthly basis reward those analysts that had the ability to change their mind. Because yep. it's just human instinct that once they have like said this is going to do well or not so well, you know, they got to defend it. But I just wanted to reward them that you can change your mind if the facts change. So now something else you've written about, which I bet a lot of financial advisors love to hear about, quite frankly, everybody, and that is dealing with insults. And I bet some advisors might even be getting some insults given the market is down of late. So how would you advise people deal with insults? And is that different from how you would advise any of us to deal with insults in daily life? Yeah, I've written a whole book on insults. It's called A Slap in the Face, but I'll try to boil that down to a short little thing here. First is, one thing is when somebody insults you, I mean, first thing to do is consider, is there any truth to it? You know, the interesting thing about your friends is they'll tell you the things you want to hear. Your enemies, ah, they'll tell you maybe what you need to know. And there'll be some false stuff mixed in with it. But if you really want a dispassionate view of what you're doing, Sometimes insults can be a very useful tool. Other times, the insult is just a person having a bad day or having a bad life. And to respond to them, here's the thing about insults. Insults are just words. It's your response to an insult that does you the harm. So, And that is largely in your control, how you respond to an insult. So if somebody insults you and it ruins your day, shame on you because you let it do that. They were just words, and you let it get to you. Oh, by the way, the person who insulted you, that's precisely what that person wanted to do. So you gave them the victory. You handed them the victory. So what should you do when insulted? Best strategy is make a joke out of it. Insult yourself even worse than they did. But that requires a little bit of wit at a time when, you know, it's going to be an emotional time, perhaps. So next best way is do absolutely nothing. Just carry on as if nothing had happened. And it's really interesting because you'll see them. They expect a reaction. And if they don't get it, then they might a few seconds later say, did you hear what I said? 
And then you would just reply, yeah. And then just carry on as if nothing had happened. Because think about it. They hit you with their best verbal shot. You shrugged it off. You shrugged it off. Or like I said, if you can make a joke about yourself in response to their insult, they look foolish. You know, they hit you with their best shot and you just laughed in response. So it's an interesting thing. I've noticed there are actually very few, at least I don't get many insults. And the ones I do are from friends for whom it's part of a joking relationship, which is an entirely different thing altogether. Yeah. Control what you can control. All right. So in your book, The Stoic Challenge, you write about setbacks and how people can take a stoic test to overcome them. Can you tell us more about that? So life is full of setbacks. Some are tiny little setbacks, like realizing your shoe is untied. Some are huge, like getting a bad diagnosis from a doctor. You don't have control over many of these setbacks, but you do have control over how you frame them. So this is the magic word, framing, psychological framing. And that is, you can take any picture you want, you know, you have the ability to frame it and you can put it in a frame that's likely to make the picture look beautiful. You have the ability to put it in a frame that's going to make even the Mona Lisa look ugly if it's an ugly frame. So life hands you pictures. Some of them are pretty, some of them are not. And your job is to frame them in a way that they work out the best in your life. So framing, for example, if somebody insults you, you can frame it as a chance to make a joke. You can frame it that way. And this whole notion of the stoic test, when life gives you a setback, there's a way you can frame it. And it's kind of this mind game where you say, oh, I'm being tested. I'm being tested to see whether I have the ability to come up with a clever workaround for this setback and to keep my cool as I do. That's how I pass the test. And taking it one level deeper is the game I imagine is there are these stoic gods. Who, what do they do? They come up with these little setbacks. Why would they do such a thing? Because they want you to be strong. They want you to be resilient. And they know that if you never experience setbacks, you will never develop that resilience. Think of a pampered person. You know, he goes outside and a mosquito bites him. Oh, this is the end of the world, right? Think of somebody who's just spent uh, the last two weeks in the Amazon jungle as part of what I call stoic training. Now, this would be an extreme form of it, but stoic training is when you go out of your way to do things that make you uncomfortable. How come? To expand your comfort zone. When you go out of your way to do things in which failure is possible, how come? So you learn to experience failure and rebound from the failure, to bounce back. And those are valuable skills to have. So one way to proceed is you treat it all as kind of an ongoing game between you and these stoic gods who want to make you stronger. Do you know one thing you just said? Well, there's a lot of things you just said that was really great. But the one thing, this is like sometimes something just strikes you. And I've always understood what the concept of framing is, but when you said, actually, just put a picture frame around it. I know that sounds so obvious, but I've never thought about it so simply. That's such a cool technique right there. That was cool. I want to ask a couple questions that we ask really all our guests. And the first question, I think I know part of your answer, and that is, we always ask people how they really maintain their health and their wellness and what practices they have, either physical or mental, to make sure they're always performing at a high level. Mm-hmm. Sounds like rowing is part of that mix. What are some other practices you do? Or tell us more about rowing. 
Yeah. So uh, I just retired at the end of the last year. So I'm on a new schedule where every day is Sunday. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm struggling, you know, and I know that the trick is I got to have a backbone for my day. So I'm working on a, on a book right now. So that fills a whole bunch of time. But principal components, number one is the food. I, I'm on a basically vegetable a diet, small portions, you know, because I've seen what's become of my generation. You know, I was, I was looking at pictures of Woodstock. We were all skinny, so skinny. <laughs> and yet, you know, if they had uh, Woodstock today, you, you wouldn't see that. So you realize there is this danger in what we eat and it affects your health and there's a whole bunch of stuff. So that's one component. The intellectual component, I've now reached an age where they're giving me the test for, you know, dementia and everything else. So they asked me to draw a clock and so on. They asked me what day of the week it is. And it's gotten difficult because every day is Sunday, you know, but you can't tell them that. <laughs> if you fail the test, bad things could happen. Another component is sleep. So I had evolved into an extreme early morning riser. What does that mean? I'd start working at one in the morning. How come? Because wow. I'd wake up at one in the morning. And I would get a lot of writing done. It's a quiet time. I would nap later on. And then I read Matthew Shepard's book on the dangers of not getting enough sleep. And man, there's a ton. So I have switched. So now I attempt to get eight hours of sleep. And I'm what's called, a, I think, a biphasic sleeper. So I typically wake up for a time at two. And what do I do? I try to listen to a podcast that isn't going to trigger my thinking. So I love the British version of Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> it's a wonderful show. Don't get me wrong. But man, I drift off after an <laughs> item or two. And then exercise would be uh, the last component. And exercise, number one, helps me sleep. And number two, it's, you know, we talked about a minute ago about this stoic training, where you're doing things that are difficult to do, you're doing things in which failure is possible, how come you're doing them? To become tougher, to become more resilient. So my competitive rowing, I'm what I call a middle of the pack rower on a good day. But you learn a lot competing. And the training I do is also interval training. So I mean, I'm going till I'm breathless, resting, and then doing it again. I call one of the drills, I call it the four minute flu, right? You're feeling perfectly fine. Four minutes later, it's like, oh no, COVID. And three <laughs> minutes after that, no, let's, let's, uh, Let's do another. But the interesting thing is when I'm competing, at the start of the race, you feel like Superman. A quarter of the way, doubts start to arise. Halfway through the race, the interesting thing is these voices start coming into your head, uh, you know, saying just the most enticing things like, Bill, you could just slow down, you know. Bill, you could stop altogether. So for me, that's the principal competition. It's not between me and the other rowers. It's between me and those voices in my head because I'm going to put them in their place. I'm going to show them who's in charge. And that's an important skill to have because there are times in life where if you can take one more stroke, if you can just hold on, it makes a huge difference in what happens to your life after that. So those would be you know, diet, exercise, sleep, and keep your mind active. But of course, the writing, I'm just problem solving for four to six hours a day in, in writing. So that takes care of that. Those are great tips. Robin, do you ever do an indoor rower? 
or row on the water? No, I don't. I run though. That's my new thing. I don't, I'm not a big exerciser. So running is a big thing for me to have taken on, but I, I feel good about it. Running is great. Yeah. Yeah. I used to run, but rowing is non-impact. So now my wife and I have to go out and walk just to get the impact, you know, keep the bone density. Um, when it comes to rowing, when I used to live in Massachusetts, I lived next to the ocean. But when I moved back to Nebraska nearly 20 years ago, I got an indoor rower and watched surfing videos. And so I ended up doing the Concept 2 ERG so much yeah. that I actually competed in the World Indoor Championship, the Crash Bees back in Boston. Oh, wow. I did do that. Oh, cool. And, uh, but I've never rowed on the water. But it's funny, my sister is taking up the sport and she's actually a competitive rower in Marin County, and she goes all over the country in, in rowing competitions. So she's probably been at yep. some regatta that you've been at. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And, you know, you see the the people in these, comp like the crash bees you were talking yep. about, these indoor competitions, and you look at the form that they're using on their erg, and you realize if you put that person in an actual skull, the boats we row yep. in, the tippy boats, He'd be upside down in three strokes. <laughs> I would be for sure. It's, yeah. It is hard. And actually, to follow up on the sleeping thing, that is really great. My goal has been to get to eight hours forever. I don't feel like I can get past the six or seven. But I think that's a great – because my thing is I do wake up. You know, if I get like an eight-hour night, eight-hour night, there's no way I'm going to get eight hours that third night. But I think Antique Roadshow is the secret. Forget melatonin and magnesium. It's that. Yeah. That is the trick. Yeah. <laughs> now, another another slight angle on that, I was prescribed a medication and my doctor said, you know, if you're taking this, you can't have alcohol. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, actually, no alcohol. <laughs> so, uh, and I wasn't, a, I wouldn't call myself a big drinker. But it, it, that has made a huge, a huge difference as well. I hadn't seen that coming. And it's insidious the way it comes, but it does affect your sleep cycle. I have an aura ring right here that tracks your ah. sleep structure. And it is so true how alcohol messes it up. I mean, even if you have one drink, it is extraordinary yep. how much the negative impact is for sure. It is. And my dream life is just going full blast anymore. That's the other thing. I have incredible dr dreams, bizarre dreams, and I'm sure there's some good reason for them. And I, I expect, I think they probably affect my creativity hmm. when I'm awake. As All well. those dreams must involve antiques. <laughs> no, but sometimes it'll work in its way in because I'll fall asleep and it'll be playing at extreme, extreme low volume. Yeah. And then I'll find myself dreaming about a teacup or something, <laughs> you know, and that's the only explanation. Yep. Another question that we ask, ask here is, so you're, since you're a stoic and an investor, how does stoicism impact your personal investments? You did say earlier, fully invested, but how does it impact it? teaches me to not get anxious. Well, what do I do? I control the things I can control. And then the rest, I just try to set to one side. So I told you I just retired. Part of that was to put my, switch all of my stuff into uh, a retirement portfolio. And, uh, you know, that, then the other thing that happens when you reach a certain age is you start looking at the annuity tables to see how long your expected lifespan is. And I, I've got a wife. And uh, so it has to be something that kind of take care of itself for a long period of time. So you put it in and then you just say, so I'm holding on maybe a annual rebalancing, you know, but other than that, it's just going to take care of itself. So it's really interesting because I've had to learn a new approach because it used to be when I was an active investor, I would watch the stock market from minute to minute. 
And now, you know, I'll glance at the end of the day and I'll say, oh, you know, look how much money I lost today, you know? And and yet it's really interesting because it's, it's just, it's part of the game. It's just kind of what happens. And long-term is my goal. So that's what I, um, I measure it against. I'll have one more for you before we let you go. And that is, can you suggest some reading material for people who are interested in learning more about Stoicism, apart from your books, of course, which we will definitely have in the show notes? I would suggest the ancient Stoics themselves. And usually that's a dangerous thing to do because you say, okay, I want you to read a philosopher, number one, and people would say, ah, and then I want you to read an ancient philosopher. But the ancient Stoics are remarkably readable. There's one that's very short. It's by Epictetus. It's referred to as his manual. It's like 20 pages long, and it's kind of the the heart of the matter. Seneca, my current favorite, he has a number of books out there, a book of essays. And the interesting thing is you can pick them up and and you get it, you know? So you don't need a background to get it. And you also get a taste for what it was like to live in Rome in first century AD. You know, he talks about being dragged to the gladiatorial contests, you know, and how in, in the break time when you're supposed to be eating, there are people in the stands just yelling out, hey, kill somebody, we're getting bored here. You know, and it's uh, good reading on several levels. And of course, there's Marcus Aurelius, who wrote what are called meditations. For him, it was a private notebook. So he said it was to himself. And it's got a lot of great lines in it. Good stuff. All right. Well, Bill, it's been great to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for coming in. Great conversation. How can listeners stay in touch and and find your books other than in the show notes, of course? (laughs) I have a website. So I've got a very, very low social uh, presence. And that's partly because I'm an old guy and partly on purpose, because the more I find out, the more I think, nah, you don't want to do that. (laughs) But I've got a website, William B. Irvin. That's B as in boy, Irvin, I-R-V-I-N-E dot com. And... It's got a lot of free stuff to read. It's got a lot. Uh, so I'll, I'll stick this podcast on. It's got a lot of stuff to listen to. And I'll, I'll also add uh, those uh, who are aware of Sam Harris's Waking Up app. I've got a series of about 22 stoic talks. These are 10 to 15 minute talks on various items uh, within stoicism. So they're a great listen if you're out on a walk or a run, for instance. Well, Bill, thank you for being on the podcast. It's a real honor to have you on. Again, your book, The Guide to the Good Life, is easily the one book that I have recommended the most, both professionally and personally. And so it's just really cool to have you on the show and talk to you directly. It's really been an honor. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com.
All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.